Awesome God, we give you glory, thanks, and praise for who you are, and that you are our rock. You are trustworthy. You never change. And because you are truth, that never changes. And you're not some stuffy old, cold, distant God. You're very present. You're very present in trouble. You're present every day in the blessings. Um, you're right here with us and in us. And you have an amazing, fantastic, glorious end in mind. It actually just opens the door to eternity. So come Holy Spirit, help us understand more, love you more, and uh, learn more, God, so that we're able to share with others. We want to be able to share with others. And thank you for that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I just forgot to grab my laser pointer. So we're in Revelation chapter 19. And let's do the yeah, timeline. Revelation 19 begins with um, the roars, the hallelujahs, the praises. And uh, John keeps writing, I heard this, then I heard this, then I heard that. And then about halfway through chapter 19, it changes to visions. Says, I saw, I saw this, I saw that. We're, we're about halfway through those, not quite halfway, and we discovered that there are seven visions. So that's one of the reasons why it leads me to think what I do about where the millennium is at, because seven is a unit, right? feels like a complete unit. And whenever we've seen sevens in Revelation 4, seven bowls, seven trumpets, stuff like that, seven seals, that whenever it's a group of seven, a unit to seven, it has always gone chronologically. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And so we get to these seven visions in Revelation 19 and 20. The millennium is smack in the middle of those seven. And uh, the one the one guy I follow a lot with his end time stuff, he, he pulls that millennium out of the, the obvious simple order and puts it at the end. And I'm like, I don't think we should do that. We haven't done it any other time in Revelation. Anytime it's a, it's a unit of seven, we're taking it chronologically. I think we should be consistent because God is consistent unless he tells us different. So we'll get there. But um, here's where we're at. Uh, Armageddon is here. Is, here's where it's pictured on the timeline. Uh, here's the white horses and the white robed folks, you and I, coming down to Jesus. And there's the, the conflagration. Uh, do we have to let the finger in the battle, actually? Does Jesus, how does Jesus release the conquering of the enemies? Mm. His word, just, a, just commands. And so, uh, if you follow it down, they end up, Armageddon, um, they go down to just the, the lake of fire, it's across the whole bottom of the illustration. And uh, well, we're going to add some folks to that today. Let me... Let's go to the um, handout. Did everybody get one? I maybe had one or two come in late now. A handout today with some said at the top notes on Revelation 19 and 20. If you didn't get that, raise your hand. I don't know if I've only got one left. How many hands do we have up? Just one? Yeah, I made one this one. <laughs> Need a picture? That we can do. There you go, perfect set, too. 
Okay, I'll make more copies of this next Sunday then. All right, so as we look at that, um, handout says notes and revelation, chapters 19 and 20. We're in chapter 19. And so the top of the headline there says, John's seven visions, or I saw. Seven times he said, I saw. And here they're broken down in chronological order as they appear in Revelation. So Revelation 19, 11, 16, the first I saw is the white horse. And, and who's riding the white horse? Jesus on the white horse. Who are there? There's a million other white horses and people wearing white, riding those white horses. Who are they? Nope. Us. Well, maybe angels, but for sure us. Riding with him. So the first thing he saw is Jesus coming on the white horse to do battle. The second I saw is he saw an angel in the sun inviting the birds to come and eat. And then last Sunday we were in the third one, weren't we? Armageddon itself, Revelation 19. So I separated those three because it's kind of a unit. All three of those have to do with Armageddon itself. And I heard that I heard their Armageddon used again in a secular press this last week. It's popping up all over in politics and stuff again. It's still in the it's in the common vernacular. Even people who don't believe the Bible or believe anything about God, they use Armageddon to describe, you know, disastrous battle. Cataclysm. So then there's the next two are grouped together because that's millennium stuff, but it starts when Armageddon is done, then the devil is banished. Now, most most time you're going to hear in preaching and teaching and even the books and stuff, you're going to hear, well, the devil was bound. Yes, he was, but there are five or six other descriptive words for what is done to him in that moment, not just bound. So, and I, I emphasize that because the pe some people want to say the millennium is happening right now, that we're in the millennium right now. Now, they've got the millennium way out of place, okay? But an awful lot of American preachers are doing that. Most Americans, Christians, think we're in the millennium uh, right now. And um, so what, the ones who think that, they take Revelation 20 all by itself, and this is where chapter numbers don't help us, okay? There shouldn't be a 19 and 20. 19 and 20 are a unit. All seven of those visions ought to be a unit together. It should be chapter 19, the whole thing. But it, it helps when it's separated out by those chapter numbers. Then they say, well, chapter 20 should be treated in a special, unique way. No, it ought to be treated like the whole rest of Revelation. It ought to be treated as a unit. It is with chapter 19. And then we see the chronology uh, that progresses there. But they pull it out of its context and say, oh, we're living in it right now. And the ones who say that will say, well, you know, the devil is bound right now. And you go, excuse me, how does that work? But they'll, they'll focus on that one word and they'll say, well, he can't stop people from getting saved, but, you know, he's restricted in other ways. It's, it's really convoluted. It's a problem. So I'm going to call it devil banished from earthly activity. He's not just bound or restricted a little bit. He is not allowed to influence the planet or people in any way, shape, or form for a thousand years. There's no way we're in the right now, obviously, right? Anybody here know the devil personally? See him in the news every day in a world? Oh, of course. 
So the, the middle, those middle two, the devil is banished, and that's a preparation for the millennium. Then you get the millennium described uh, in some, some detail, briefly. And then at the end of the millennium, Satan is released. Then uh, the last two of the seven visions are grouped together because uh, you've got resurrection. Um, the dead were going to hell. Finally, finally get their resurrection at the end of the millennium. The great white throne judgment takes place. And then the new heaven, the new earth. And see, I, I think I've said it, I'm sure I have in this study, a couple, three times through Revelation, that um, I was thinking the new heaven, the new earth happens before the millennium. And I was following the lead of this one gentleman that I didn't realize he takes it out of place in chapter 20. Now the reason... And I've, I know I've said this. Well, at the end of the seven years, I mean, all this, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, the devastation on the earth is going to be unimaginable. I mean, the water sources are all wrecked and earthquakes and famine and all this stuff. Um, you can't imagine the planet being livable. And so that's one reason. So logically, you'd say, well, the new, new heaven and new earth has to happen then, at the end of the seven years then. When Armageddon's done, the place, the whole planet's a wreck. We need a, we need a brand new planet. Well, logically, that's the case. But chronologically, in Revelation, that's not where it happens. The new heaven and new earth happens at the end of the thousand years. So you say, well, how? The planet's devastating. Sure it is. And um, the tree-hugging, off-the-cliff environmentalists scream about every disaster and stuff, right? So when, who remembers the Exxon Valdez, the oil spill off Alaska? It's going to wreck the planet forever, ever, and ever. And it was, it, was a, it was a devastating event, right? How many years did it take for the local water and fish and stuff in life to few years, within a few years, three, four, five years. God has designed this planet. It has an amazing ability to recover. So the, the volcano on Mount St. Helens, right? The environmentalists, oh, go there now. It's a beautiful, lush, recovered ecosystem. God designed this planet to be able to recover from devastating occurrences. Is it going to be fun the first 6, 12, 18, 24 months? It's going to take a while. But all, but all God has to do is send timely rains. And, you know, God, if God supernaturally chooses to help the planet recover quickly, it'll recover quickly. And that'll be part of what we're, um, what we're doing with our thrones. We're going to be ruling from the thrones, right? We'll be in charge of the recovery. Think that's the way it's going to play out. Just being honest, God doesn't give us very much detail at all about the millennium. So that's why there's so much, let's say, guessing and throwing theories at it and stuff. I'll try not to guess too much and just let the text speak for itself. Amen. Okay. So that's how it that's how it progresses chronologically in the Bible. The new heaven, new earth is at the end of a thousand years. 
Now I'll keep going on the, on the paper. Those seven visions encompass four major events. Second coming of Jesus to the earth with Armageddon, this time to reign. So he comes down in that battle, wipes out um, Antichrist, the devil's forces, and then rules and reigns on the earth. Second big major event is the millennium itself. <coughs> then after the millennium, judgment day, the great, great white throne, and then the new creation. We have a new earth. Those are the four major events, and that's the order they happen in. So then I wrote, most preachers in America today teach that we are already living in the millennium. This idea was first turned loose in 1830. Remember, that's the first time we had it um, historically being a thing. So the, for the first 1800 years of Christianity, this was not an idea. So it kind of makes you wonder if this really was God's plan all along, how come Christians didn't understand it and have a clue about it for 1800 years? I'm not saying it can happen, but it's, it's pretty unlikely. So this idea was first turned loose in 1830 with the preaching of the Reverend John Nelson Darby. He also introduced the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture, which is hugely popular in America today. Does the world look to you like the devil is currently banished and has no ability to influence the people of Earth? Does the millennium does the millennium happening now fit at all with the clear and simple sequence of events detailed in Revelation 18 20? Answer both those questions. You know, she so I'm going to read you a little bit. Do you, do you know about this, Darby? Okay, I'll read just a little bit. Because, yeah. Uh, the origin of this pre-trib and millennium ideas, the origin is shrouded in mystery, though some claim it lies in a prophecy given by one Margaret MacDonald in Port Glasgow, Scotland. It clearly emerged in the teaching of the Reverend Edward Irvin, who left the church in Scotland to found the Catholic Apostolic Church, whose empty cathedral still stands in Albury near Guildford in Surrey. Dr. Henry Drummond also preached it, owner of Albury Court, in the library which were held prophetic conferences, to which came the following. So Henry Drummond was putting these ideas out, and then the Reverend John Nelson Darby came to those conferences and heard Drummond talking about it. He picked it up and ran with it. Um, Darby left the Anglican Church in Dublin to found the Brethren, his own, his own denomination, because he was getting pushback in his denomination saying, what are you doing? Where did you get this from? This isn't scriptural. So he started his own, his own denomination. It was this last man, Darby, who did more than any other to popularize the novel doctrine. Though some of his colleagues in the movement, such as George Mueller, love him, right? Remember George? Uh, he's the one, Bristol Orphanage, he, he created a number of orphanages. And George didn't receive a penny from the government for his orphanages. He never publicly asked for financial support, ever, for any of his orphanages. He always just prayed. And there's a, there's a, a thousand stories of them the kids waking up and there's no food in the orphanage to feed them breakfast. And so they, the kitchen group comes to Pastor Mueller and says, how do we have no food? And he says, set the tables, have the children sit at their places, and I will pray. And he prays, and there's a knock on the door. Oh, a milk wagon just broke down in front of the orphanage. Can you, know, can you use the milk? You know, in a bakery, two minutes later, the door knocked, and uh, the baker shows up and he says, we had this issue at the bakery. We've got all this extra bread. Can you use it? 
I mean, stuff like this happened all the time. He never publicly asked for support. And God miraculously supplied everything. So that's this George Mueller was one of Darby's colleagues. George Mueller never accepted the idea of this early rapture, uh, even though it became the orthodox teaching from which few later dared to deviate. Uh, now there's, there's a lot of missionary societies from America sending missionaries out. And if you don't sign a document that says you believe that the rapture is imminent and stuff like this, they won't let you serve on their mission team. Uh, that's how big a deal it's become. Crossing the Atlantic, so yay, which direction you suppose he went. Darby persuaded a lawyer, Dr. C.L. Schofield, who has a Schofield Bible in the home. Nobody? Have you ever heard of him? Huge, huge. Um, one of the very first ever study Bibles. Schofield study Bible. And he persuaded Schofield to adopt this concept. So Schofield was a lawyer. Um, great influence. He in turn incorporated it into the Schofield Bible, which combined interpretive comments and the inspired text in such a way that readers were hardly able to distinguish between the two. They found the secret rapture in the Bible. This version was a bestseller. It was probably the biggest factor in the astonishing spread of the idea. It's now taught in Bible colleges, Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. It's one of the most well-known. I think that's the biggest seminary in the nation. Um, all the radio TV preachers come out of Dallas. All of them. Well, I'm sorry, 90%. It's widely read in popular writings. Hal Lindsey. Late great planet Earth. He's a product of Dallas. So that's that's where these ideas came from. That's the source. And I did I thought it might be valuable to you to know the source. Not just have Pastor Joe say, This is happening in America and almost nowhere else, and I disagree with it. I want you to know the background. Okay, so that's where this stuff came from. It's recent. Um, it's enticing to hear that Jesus might come any second and get out of here before things get even worse than they are now. That's that's enticing, right? Uh, we're already living in the millennium. That the new heaven, new earth is just around the corner. That's enticing, and it's leading us astray. Okay, that for background and some some update. So we're in the middle of it, chapter nineteen in Revelation. I'm going to pick it up at verse 17, where we, we finished that last week. It kind of helps us get back in the flow here. Verse 17 is um, the second vision of the seven. Here John writes, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice, all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the Flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Okay, new territory. Then I saw the... Say the line. Say the Beast. Who's the beast? Yeah, we've got to... It helps to just repeat this over and over and over again as we go through Revelation. Because they, they just pop up every now and then. The dragon is Satan the devil. The beast is the Antichrist. Okay, sometimes the false prophet is also called the beast, but 
but not usually. He's usually just called straight out the false prophet. But the beast is the Antichrist himself. Also, sometimes it, it, the beast is, is his ten king power base, right? But in this case, it's, it's clearly speaking about the man, the individual, the Antichrist. So verse 19 says, Then I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So the Antichrist gathers his world, uh, worldwide army to come against who specifically? Who's the rider on the horse? Jesus, who's his army? We are. Good luck with that. Verse 20. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet would perform the miraculous signs on his behalf. And so let's... Who captures him? Did it tell us? Doesn't give us detail. She says the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. I don't know if angels do it. Don't know if Jesus himself does it. Don't know if we do it. But captured. Um, and then gives some detail here about the false prophet because we don't hear about him an awful lot, but here he does. With him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. So keep in mind, the false prophet will perform bona fide miracle signs to deceive people and get them to worship the Antichrist. It says, with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Any questions or comments there? It almost sounds like John is giving us some detail. Um, it makes perfect sense to us that the beast is captured. He's going to get his just deserts. Uh, why, why does the false prophet also need to be captured? Because he's a master of what? Deception and delusion. That he is... Deceived people and gotten many in the world, the majority of the world, to worship the Antichrist, to take the mark and to assure their place in hell. So he's going to get his just deserts. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. What do you note there about their, their judgment? Right. It, it, it clearly knows that they're alive when they're thrown in. And then we'll discover that does go on forever. What else? Good. What else? What are they thrown alive into? Fiery lake of burning sulfur. So Tim is exposed to sulfur about every day. And Sue says he can barely handle it. His eyes are just burning and what else? Breathing? Breathing is not as hard as Okay. Okay. 
on fire. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So constant and forever. And what do we do? We don't use the old sulfur match as much anymore. When we used to, you would, right? <laughs> Until the breeze took it away. You don't have that option. And if you think about you touch something, you burn your hand. How painful that is. So I wanted to go back to um, this fiery lake is mentioned before. Well, let's show the fiery lake. Let's let's go back. Matthew twenty five forty one. Yes, this a little bit. Matthew twenty five forty one. First Matthew twenty four and twenty five is where twenty four is where Jesus spells out the end times to the disciples. Twenty five he gives some uh, parables about being ready for the end times, and then the sheep and the goat judgment is there. So twenty five forty one is describing the judgment. And just to kind of keep this in mind, so 2541, then he will say to those who are on his left, this is part of the judgment. Those who are on his left are the unbelievers. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. So, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. We don't have a lot more detail. So God has obviously prepared heaven for the saved with him. He's prepared... Uh, eternal fire for the devil and his angels. And then it's it's kind of like, I don't know, a third place is not prepared for those who, the people who reject Christ. Uh, they end up going to this, this place, but it wasn't prepared specifically for them. So just kind of interesting to me. Comments or questions? Yeah, thank you for that. I like the connection too. When when Jesus was baptized and Satan tempted him immediately three times, each time, how did Jesus defend himself and end the argument? Each time he just quoted scripture. He says, Well, Thus, thus says the Lord, and it's quoting from Deuteronomy. And each time Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, the devil, he doesn't, he doesn't come back on any one of the responses. He can't. The word of God ends arguments. Uh, even Satan himself doesn't try and come back and twist and turn and mess with him. God declares it's done. He moves on to the next temptation. Uh, it happens all three times. It happens again in this situation. Good. Anything else through verse 20? Okay, 21. 
The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. So the rest of them, who is he talking about? So the, the two, the beast and the false prophet, were, were captured and thrown into the lake of fire. What about the rest of them? All This is all the army, all the soldiers, all the armies gathered, right? 21. The rest of them, all the rest of the soldiers gathered, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. So by Jesus' command, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's interesting, the commentators, a lot of them will try and, well, you know, like this did, This doesn't actually physically literally happen. You know, so they all start spiritualizing. Well, this really is talking about how the Word of God accomplishes all these wonderful things. And going on, and I'm like, I don't know if this, and it's repulsive, right? Who wants to think and ponder on it? I don't want to. But it is clearly literal, detail all over the place. Everywhere you look at scripture about Armageddon, it is never spiritualized. It's never allegorized. Um, why, does, why does Ezekiel go into the detail that it takes seven months to bury all the dead? Why would you go into that kind of detail if it's a spiritual life? Just This is the stuff where I'm like, come on, people. Let the scripture be literal and true and simple and powerful and let us deal with the word itself. But let's not try and soften it and make it nice and pretty and whatever else to suit our own own needs. Let's let it stand on its own. So that's Armageddon and a terrible aftermath. Now, is, is the whole world population <coughs> in Armageddon? The ones that are left. Are they mentioned? The civilians? They aren't mentioned here. It's all the other soldiers in this war, this battle, are killed. It doesn't say the whole rest of the planet. So you kind of wonder, well, who, who's left to rule over? There are folks that survive all this stuff. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest, my brain swims the deeper I go into this millennium thing and try and figure out different groups of people and where they're at and how they fit and stuff. Um, I don't have a firm grasp on all that stuff. We'll do our best. We'll go through it together. But um, above my pay grade, my brain is not able to. Yeah. Anything through chapter 19? Let's go ahead and dip our toes into 20. Like I say, number. A great big fat number 20 shouldn't be there. It just continues to flow. This is all one big unit. Uh, we've, we've had three visions so far. Now we're going into the fourth. So chapter 20, verse 1 says, And I saw an angel. This is the fourth time he says, I saw. So it's a new vision, fourth vision. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the what? The abyss. Capital A. It's a specific place. He to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. Now, I don't know if, if you want to go there or not, but I thought, I just felt like, uh, at least me, I needed to kind of go back and pick up on what is this abyss exactly? For sure, what is it? In the Gospels, it's mentioned one time, Luke chapter 8. 
In chapter 8, this is the uh, Legion demoniac, you know, and her 2,000 pigs, that whole wonderful story. And let's see, Luke 8.31. Jesus asked, you know, what's your name? The demon says, Legion, verse 31. And they, these thousands of demons in the man, they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So the demons want to spend time in the abyss. So, I don't know. I can't say that it's the place of eternal fire, but I wonder if it, the eternal lake of fire might be in the abyss. I don't know, we'll see. Just trying to nail some of this down, and, I, and we can't as tightly as I'd like to. The other mentions of the abyss are in Revelation. It's the only one of the Gospels. Uh, Revelation chapter 9. These are going to be familiar to you as we touch on Revelation chapter 9. It's mentioned two or three times. Uh, this is with the, the angels who blow the trumpet, the seven trumpets. Um, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The stars, an angel was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. So, you know, maybe the eternal lake is there, like a fire, maybe. Because something is producing amazing smoke. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And we, we guess that those are probably demonic forces that come forth. Oh, yeah. We're dropping down to verse 11. It's mentioned briefly really one more time. Verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. They had these, these scorpion things. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss. So there's a fallen angel demon who's king over the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon in Greek, Apollyon, which means kind of like destroyer. So it kind of sounds like hell, doesn't it? The hell prepared for the devil and his angels. Can Yeah, well, there's a king of the abyss now. Yes, later on. Yeah, interesting with this key. So this angel had a key, opened the door. We're going to see here in Revelation 20 another angel is given a key. This time to lock him up. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Yeah, this is interesting too. Now, when they had finished their testimony, this is when uh, the two the uh, two witnesses um, in Jerusalem, right? They can't be killed. The Antichrist tries to kill them for three, year, three and a half years and can't kill them. And then finally at the end, God pulls back his protection and they're killed. This is verse 7. Now, when they, the witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast, the Antichrist, that comes up from the abyss. So where did the Antichrist come? 
body of dust. That's interesting. Will attack them and overpower and kill them. And I, to be honest, I don't quite get where the Antichrist comes up from the abyss because the Antichrist is a human being. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I just mentioned that that's where he came from. But maybe it's a different beast. Maybe this isn't the Antichrist. <coughs> the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack with all harm kill him. Maybe it's. <laughs> right, there's another capital B. Maybe it's another creature that comes from the yeah, abyss. 17, chapter 17, verse 8. It's the last place where it's mentioned before. Revelation 20, so 17, 8. But now here, here we go back. <laughs> Chapter 70, verse 8. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and will come up. Well, who's that description of? Once was, now is not. Now, that's, that's the Antichrist for sure. For sure. And it says, and he will, he will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. So... Yeah, but the description of once was, now is not, will come. That's Antichrist description. So, here I go, I'm telling you. I don't know. But I thought we should have that background on the abyss to maybe give some insight. Here, let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. Wrap up here. Verse 1. Fourth vision, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. So what do we know about this angel that's going to lock up the Antichrist and the false priest and the devil? What do we know about him? Nothing. Now what's interesting about that? I mean, saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. That ancient serpent was the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. What would you expect about this angel? Is he doing, is this a big deal? Yeah. What would, you, would you expect a description of this angel or telling us who he is? This is really, really big. Kick booty stuff. He gets to he gets to banish the devil to the abyss and lock him up for a thousand years. He gets to whoop on him, and all it says is an angel did this. Okay, why would that be the case? I mean, who, who could the angel be? Just throw out some possibilities. Hmm? Could be Michael, the archangel of you know warrior angels. Protecting the people of God. Excellent possibility. Who else could it be? Angel means, at its root, just means messenger. Could be Jesus, but you would think it would give us clues about that, right? I'm thinking probably not Jesus. Could be Michael, for sure. The, I don't know. It seems to me like the fact that it doesn't say anything about this angel makes it sound like, makes it sound kind of like I was like, you, over there. Here, take this key and go go lock him up. 
It makes it sound like no big deal. He is so completely disarmed at this point. He's like a, a little puppy, a toothless little puppy. Any, any old angel can lock him up down and take care of him. That's the way it comes across. Isn't that glorious? Is that the case? Armageddon's just been accomplished. His last physical effort to overcome Christ and his armies. Completely disarmed. I think it's I think it's just yeah, you over there. Come come get this key. Which I think we need to really take in because it's not the angel is God's power because he sent the angel. Right. When he sends us, it's we're just by Yeah. And what God does, and I don't think he understands his word. Mm-hmm. This holy word. Yeah. I don't think we have a fathom yeah. of what we have in our hands. Right. And no fear. Can we throw up my my chapter nineteen illustration? We'll probably down with this one. We've had it for months. Yep, this is spot on, Diana. And when we know that we're sent by God. Zero fear. Zero fear. The enemy is on the run when God has sent us. So the last, this, so faith that Christ Jesus comes in his white horse and the angel announces supper time and then the declaration that the false prophet and this, the beast, it's actually the Antichrist, but I didn't know how to draw him, so I did the whole beast. He's one of these figures here. Uh, they all go down to the eternal lake of burning sulfur fire. And he says, we are going down, I can't remember what else he says, Pardon. Yeah, we got to finish. Pick it up next Sunday. Deeper into Revelation 20, we're getting closer, folks. Deeper. Awesome God. Uh, your righteous wrath and anger and judgment is, is mind-blowing. That makes your grace and your mercy and your saving love for us on the cross even more amazing. We love you. We bless you. Help us to bring more folks into salvation before the trumpet blows. In Jesus' name, amen.